0: You are listening to From Sobriety to Recovery with Jesse Mogul. Let's get to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to From Sobriety to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul, and today is Valentine's Day. Wow! And the crowd goes wild. I'm not sure if this is a Hallmark holiday. I'm not really sure. Uh, I know that there's some St. Valentine's Day massacre I remember hearing about a long time ago. I know that there's some like 15th century monk or something that um, did his thing, and maybe that's why we celebrate uh, Valentine's Day. Regardless of why it's so popular now, I really think it's an awesome day to tell everybody that you love that you love them, and I think that it's a super special day That should be honored regardless of whether it's been, you know, turned into a commerce-driven holiday or not. Which, let's face it, um, doesn't everything in this country at some point turn into a commerce-driven holiday? I'm surprised Flag Day isn't bigger, just so they could have a reason to sell a hell of a ton of American flags. Like, like Arbor Day, you should. You think there would be people in the streets selling little tiny trees, and everyone would just go around and plant trees? Um, The reason why I am shooting this. On Thursday, I normally shoot my podcast on Sunday night, and then it releases on Monday, and so for those of you who are listening via the podcast, let me fill you in on what's going on right now. I'm on my Instagram account, From Sobriety to Recovery, and I'm shooting live, because it's Valentine's Day, and this is a really special day for me, and I really wanted to get the emotion that's raw and vulnerable that I'm feeling now, and get it out there for those who are interested in listening to it, because today is the 12th anniversary of my mother dying. And dying on Valentine's Day, I always thought was, you know, I think I've used the word apropos a little bit too much today. And I'm not even really sure I know what that word means, but it just seems like the right word for this situation. Um, My mother was an amazing woman. Um, I I remember knowing in my 30s that really I became who I am because of her, for better or for worse. But I remember... I remember uh, telling her once in my early 20s that I became who I was because of me and that she had nothing to do about it. And then after I said that, we didn't talk for a couple of years, which was, uh, looking back in hindsight, a very um, addictive mindset kind of thing to do. And uh, I, I mean, I suffered in my addiction in my 20s much worse, you know, to me, much worse than I did in my 30s in 18 to 21. There was a lot of cocaine and LSD and a lot of alcohol, like a fraternity brother level of alcohol. Cause I was in a fraternity who was not into all those drugs, but I found a way to be into them anyways. And, um, I left ball state because I couldn't handle, I, I dropped out. My grades were horrendous. And I moved to Orlando where I got, then I got in, I kept all the cocaine and LSD. And then I just threw ecstasy and ketamine and, and, you know, and, and Xanax and Valium and, and all of that stuff in there. Um, the only thing I never got into was, was crack or heroin or, or meth, and that's just because of, of all of the things I knew about it. I just knew it was bad, and I really liked the mind-expanding drugs, and that drove a wedge between uh, me and a lot of my family members, uh, but let's specifically talk about mom. Um, Theta Delta Chi at ASU is what mindful architecture just said. Then you understand. And so, for those of you guys listening to the podcast, keep in mind that since I'm doing this Instagram live, I'm going to be really informal here. I'm just going to be conversational because, unlike my other podcasts where I do a, a, some teaching, this is really just me wanting to get this story out because I've talked about it so much in the podcast and I've never really dealt with it, as far as you guys hearing it. Um, I keep saying I'll talk about mom some other time. And um, my mom got Crohn's when I was eight years old, and, and that was in 1984. We had left Florida, where we lived in this house that was specifically built for us in this beautiful neighborhood called Bay Hill, Bay Lakes, and it ultimately turned into a very rich, amazing neighborhood down the line. But at the time, when we moved into it, it was just a normal suburban neighborhood right outside of SeaWorld. And, um, I guess looking back on it, it was always going to grow bigger, but now Bay Hill and Bay Lakes, like Tiger Woods and people like that live there. We don't live, we would never have lived in <laughs> that side of the neighborhood. Anyways, we were definitely over where, I don't know, normal people would live. Uh, but it was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful house. Um, there was a lake with alligators in it. I've got pictures of my sister riding turtles, the size of baby hippos, um, Snakes in the backyard, things that other people may have been afraid of. Uh, I wasn't. I remember loving playing in that lake. Uh, I remember us having to put a fence up around the house so the alligators would stop trying to get into the hot tub. And we loved this house. But then my dad decided to move us to Indiana so that he could um, own car dealerships there. And that was the beginning of the end for my family. Because uh, I think mom already had Crohn's living inside of her. But once we moved to Indianapolis in February of 1984 and showed up with you know three feet of snow, uh, we couldn't move into the house yet. So we got stuck in this really shitty Ramada Inn uh, with horrible room service. And mom got sick within a week and was in the hospital. And dad was leaving my sister. And my, my dad was leaving my sister and I in the Ramada Inn. Hello, Hello, Jen. Um, just saying hi to some more people on Instagram Live. For those of you who are listening to this via podcast, I will try to not do that too much, just so that you don't feel left out. Um, so back to the Ramada Inn story. It was a horrible, horrible situation, and um, we were in that hotel for about six to eight weeks while my mom was going through a series of surgeries that left her scarred for life. And um, you know, I've got some horrendous stories. One time, I went to the hospital. To visit her, and she sat up to give me a hug, and her belly had just been surgically operated on, and her and it, the stitches released, and everything inside her body came out in front of me, and it was um, pretty, pretty ridiculous. Uh, looking back at it. And thinking about what I, I, as a child, had to witness from my mother, uh, within the first eighteen months of having Crohn's, from eighty four uh, February eighty four through eighty five, um, she had about twenty or thirty surgeries. Um, she ended up having a colostomy bag, which is this little thing on the side of your body that you end up that you poop in, because she had all of her intestines taken out. Um, it was bad, and that was the life that we had from then from there forward and um, my dad was already a work he's my stepdad but I always reference him as dad because he took over that duty when I was three years old Um, and I'm still great friends with my bio dad and I also call him dad so um, for those of you trying to keep up also stepdad's now dead so um, when I talk about the dad in this particular story it's going to be about the stepdad who's also passed away and he died from um, from an addiction to sugar And um, cigarettes and work. So addiction kills pretty much everyone in my family who doesn't pay attention to the fact that that's in us. Um, So we're in Indianapolis from 84 to 87. And Crohn's takes over. And, you know, I do as much as I possibly can to help my mother and be a part of that journey with her. My lower bedroom, my bedroom was downstairs in the basement, which was super creepy. We lived in this gigantic house that had tons of rooms, and we didn't need all of them. But unfortunately, there was only two rooms upstairs, and my sister took the one across the hall from the bedroom, leaving me as the only person downstairs because there was no other uh, bedroom. And so my, not only was this super creepy (laughs) In a horrible place for a kid to be, to have to uh, to grow up during that age, and and also with his mom being sick, my vent in my bedroom connected to my parents' vent in their bedroom, and it was a direct connection. It was basically like a a megaphone. I could I could hear every single thing that they said. And even when they tried to throw the pillow on it, I could still hear the yelling and the crying. Um, But most importantly, I heard some of the horrible shit that my dad had said to my mother. And this did not um, clearly go inside my brain very well. And um, I grew a tremendous amount of resentment towards him. Even um, in his last years, I barely was even talking to him and... At you know, at twenty two and twenty five and thirty and and on, he died in two thousand eleven or twelve, I think. I don't even remember. Um, I you know, I back then I thought I was just I just didn't connect with him very well because I was always drunk and and high. Um, looking back now that I've been sobriety and recovery, I clearly see that what he did to my mother when I was a young kid um, was something I felt. I found unforgivable and um it really destroyed any chance of us having a feasible relationship for the rest of his life. Um, And so we did that Indianapolis thing, and mom had many more surgeries and ambulances. Um, The the stress, it took its toll. All told, I remember before she died, she told me that she had broken through 50 surgeries on her body. They had to move the stoma, the little red thing that pops out of the body that the poop goes through to get to the intestines. They had to move that from each side of her body about every year because... That's Your skin rots around that. And so this woman dealt with a lot. And um, in 1994, 10 years after that, I'm jumping forward a little bit because it's just, you know, we moved from Indianapolis to a farm in Columbus, Indiana, and uh, we did that for two years where I did middle school. And then we went to Daytona Beach for two years and did that where I did my first two years of high school and then back to the farm for my last two years of high school uh, funny little sidebar. We actually ended up leaving Daytona Beach. It was right around the, I want to say it was the Rodney King thing because there was a tremendous amount of violence in the school. I went to Mainland Senior High, and um, I want to say that that was what was this the pro- the protagonist for us moving back, and so um, then uh, graduate high school and we uh my mom and my dad decide to get divorced because he finds some pictures that she took of herself and her girlfriend who went down to bonita beach and took some ecstasy and danced around at a club and she found some pictures he found some pictures that he assumed were one thing when they weren't and um he blew up the entire marriage and she was more than ready for it to end anyways and that was the second ending of our family, because uh, losing my mother, the having her leave and move to Florida while I went to Ball State University, she was the reason why. I mean, I was a straight-A student in high school. I kept on the mark for her. I took care of her from 8 to 18. I was the one who always made sure that we had, we had uh, the shit bag, which was this bag we always carried with us any time we went somewhere, because... Um, Because her ostomy bag could break off of her body, it could open, and poop would go all down her leg, and then she'd have to go to the bathroom and change clothes, and I mean, this happened frequently enough that we didn't go anywhere without the crap bag. And um, I've got stories of it breaking open at airports in Oklahoma City, I've got stories of it breaking apart in a car during an ice storm, I've got stories of it breaking anywhere you possibly could imagine, at grocery stores, at shopping malls, at amusement parks, it didn't matter, that bag showed no mercy <laughs> to us, and would bust open whenever the hell it felt like and um and this is all going towards the the me being an addict because um you know my dad would say that she had got into drinking um while we were in middle school, and this could have been true I'd come home a lot and she'd be sleeping in the middle of the day, but I just blamed it on crohns, and so I'd make dinner I'd get some things ready um her bag would break open and and poop would go all over the bed and her and and dad would get into a huge fight and he'd storm out and she, I'd hear her crying through that vent and I'd go upstairs and I'd take all the sheets off the bed with her and, you know, I'd do the best I could as an eight to 11 year old to um, make her um, feel okay with that. Um, Even when we moved to the farm and down to Daytona, when that would happen, I would still step up and come in and help her because it just seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, I took on a lot of responsibility that most kids would not understand and think about, but it's, you know, it's what the way that the cookie crumbled on that. And that's fine and all, but now I see the damage that it did to me, and so when mom and and, and dad divorced in the summer of 94, um, I immediately took to marijuana, got stoned the first time. I graduated high school June 4th, 1994. I was stoned the very first time, June 15th, 1994, which was my 18 birthday, Um, I went to a Pink Floyd concert, sat at Roth Center, and got high for the first time. The first time I got drunk was at a Pearl Jam concert, March 24th, 1994, Um, and that was while they were still together, but looking back at it a while ago, I figured this out that the marriage was already um, breaking apart. And then I took LSD for the first time the uh, July 9th through the 11th at Grateful Dead shows at Deer Creek. And then I went to college, and that was it. I mean, all of a sudden, my roommate's dad was making LSD. So he'd go, he'd go down to Seymour, and or was, was it Franklin? Go back, to, he'd go down to Franklin and come up with a Bible, which is a hundred sheets of acid, and he'd hook me up with fifty sheets of it, and I'd go and spread it all over Greek territory, and I'd take three hits and go to frickin', um Uh, history class and be tripping my balls off, sitting next to, you know, Bernie and and Button and some of these people. And uh, my addiction just took hold. Double, you know, double shots of vodka before I went to the fraternity house, blacking out and passing out there, waking up with marker all over my face because these are 18 to 22 year old kids who don't have any more emotional intelligence than I had. So, what was I going to expect from them, as far as helping me not become an alcoholic? Most of them were showing signs of alcoholism themselves, regardless of how much they chastised me and tried to push me out of the fraternity because they knew that I was into this stuff They still they they were everyone was doing their their own addiction thing, right like if you 've listened to any of my episodes on the podcast college that world of college is the best place for an addict to, to hide because everyone does addictive kind of things you know there people overeat they overdrink, they use too much drugs they sleep all day they party all night you can hide there no one even knows no one even cares in fact the more you drink the more friends you have because you're always down to party and so um mom and i's relationship was rocky at best And from 94 um, to 97, whenever I was really using heavily at Ball State, um, you know, I'd say pretty much it was rocky for the rest of her life um, until she died in 2007. Uh, Again, if you guys wonder why we're talking about this today, today's my mom's 12 year um, um, anniversary of her death. And yesterday was my 25 months of being sober. And so um, 25 months of sobriety the day before my mom's 12th anniversary of her death seems like a really good time to have this conversation with you guys. Cause we all have reasons that we became addicted, right? I mean, you know, my brother who was raised by my biological father saw addiction in the bloodline and knew that he was prone to it. So he chose not to drink before he was 21. Like actually did not. I think, he, okay. I think he said like once or twice he may have had a beer or two, but thank you very much. Mindful Ar- architecture. Um, She just gave me a thumbs up. Congrats to those of you listening via the podcast. And my brother knew that there was an addiction problem in the family, so he didn't. Turned to um, using, like I did. In fact, he was a straight A student at a very difficult university called TCU, and uh, he's got a great degree and a great family life going for him because he went the other way. Right? He was raised in a family with a little bit with a little bit more emotional intelligence than I was. I, went, what could I expect from my workaholic father and my mother, who's dying of Crohn's from '84 on? Um, and so, I look back at the relationship I had with my mom from 94 to 07, 13 years, and then there was times where we would talk on her birthday or on Christmas, or I wouldn't even call her on her birthday. There was so much internal anger. Um, And I still wonder how much of that trauma and anger is inside of me and uh, haunts me and overwhelms. Um, I have a hard time connecting in relationships. Um, There's a vulnerability I'm not ready to release and them yet, the sphere of the sphere of abandonment, the sphere of putting my heart and soul into something and having it fall apart on me. Um, these are things that are there because of what my mother you know, put me through and whether she, she didn't mean to guys. I mean, no, you no, know, everybody's doing the best they they can with the resources they have. You know, I'm a master practitioner of a practice called neuro-linguistic programming, which is basically therapy and psychiatry um, that's been, you know, simplified so that we can understand neuro, which is the, which is the brain and the pathways of the brain and uh, linguistic, which is the language and um, programming. So it's, it's like how the mind uses language to program itself, how the mind is programming itself and has always been programming itself. And um, through NLP, I've learned that she did the best she could with the resources she had and that you know from 0 to 7 as were as were being imprinted and implanted upon by the adults around us our parents our siblings people in school we're just we're just taking all this stuff in and it's just being put in and it's being stamped on us and we're 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 recording it and we don't even know we're doing that and then from 7 to 14 we're mirroring and matching so we take this programming that we had no control over that we didn't even know was being programmed into us. And now we start to mirror and match it back out to the rest of the world, and we're still being imprinted and planted upon. So at eight years old, my mom gets this disease, and I see you know, dad work really hard to provide for the family but give us no love, all of a sudden, I see that in me all the time, all the time. I will work my butt off. I will work my butt off and ignore my relationships and not call my sister and not call my bio dad, and I, I will... I I will sacrifice everything for my career. I will sacrifice my own happiness to get the public speaking off the ground, the life coaching, the helping others. It's it's to my own detriment and it's something I work on on regularly. You know, I I do life coach people and it's amazing to see them have these tremendous breakthroughs. Uh, But it cannot be lost on anyone that even the most talented of all people, let's say Tony Robbins, he's one of the most famous life coaches who uses NLP. Dude's got problems. He's got 99 problems and something, mine might not be one, but I can promise you he still has problems. I doubt it's communication because the guy seems like a master communicator, but at the same time, everybody has problems. Problems are like water coming through a leaky boat. No matter how much you shovel them out, another problem comes. No matter how elevated you are, more water comes into the boat. It's just, it's different kind of water. Someone who's living paycheck to paycheck and whose car just broke down and now they need to get a new alternator, that's a problem that Tony Robbins probably doesn't have to deal with because he has all the money to buy a new alternator. So when that happens, it's just an annoyance that he has to lose his car for the day. Everyone has their own thing, and it cannot be lost that no matter how much somebody tells you they got their shit together, they still have some things they need to be working on. In recovery, we learn that everyone has some shit they got to be working on. I'm watching a movie right now that my therapist at Kaiser recommended, called um, "He Won't Get Far on Foot," and it's Joaquin Phoenix um, and he's the lead actor who is an alcoholic, and he ends up getting in a car accident that puts him in a wheelchair, and Jonah Hill plays one of the other leads. and I, I was watch I got through the first half yesterday, and it was very touching to see these people in these meetings talking about what they were doing because I've, I've been in those meetings uh, where I've watched people share but for some reason maybe it was because it was my 25th month anniversary maybe it's because my mother's death day is today uh, it just hit a lot harder because i succumbed to, i didn't just succumb to addiction i welcomed it i remember the day that i was i lit up a cigarette um, super hungover it was a it was a marble Marlboro Menthol, and it was the long ones, not the normal ones, but like the long ones. And I remember saying, "If I light up the cigarette and smoke it on the way to school, I'm going to become addicted to cigarettes, and I'm going to have to deal with that somewhere down the road." And I remember being like, "All right, cool, fuck it, let's do it." And I lit up that cigarette, and you know, still to this day, I I vape just because I can't stand the taste of cigarettes anymore. But I still have that need for nicotine. I don't do it because I think it's cool. Because I don't think it. I don't even think cigarettes are cool. Uh, I didn't think cigarettes were cool when I was doing them. Um, It just really made doing six double shots of vodka and and a line of blow much more easier to put into the body whenever you could have a cigarette afterwards. I remember it really easing my stomach in, especially when I was on ecstasy a lot. Um And so looking back at my mother's disease and how that affected her life, which thus affected my life, and my sister struggles with addiction too. She's got a year and a half of sobriety. She started even earlier than me because when mom left, I moved to Florida. Uh, dad got her and... Um, he did a shitty job raising her just like he would have done a shitty job raising me. And she was left to her own vices at the house while he worked from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. So he was an absentee dad. And so she had her boyfriend over and he introduced her to drugs. And she's going to come on the show and I'm going to have her Instagram live. And i will have her be on the podcast too because she's got an amazing story. I really want you guys to see um, that aspect of me as well. So, Looking, you know, going to Orlando, then my sister gets into ecstasy. And so I get into ecstasy because I'd always loved LSD. And then I became a raver and I'm always at raves. But I'm also going to Grateful Dead shows or in fish shows. And, um, you know, then I went to the University of Florida at 25. And so I left the ecstasy and the LSD behind in Orlando. And was like, okay, I'm I'm good with that. Uh, That wasn't really much of a scene for it in um, University of Florida. uh, But there was definitely a cocaine and alcohol scene. And mind you, I'm, the, I'm not like Scarface, guys. I wasn't like, say hello to my straw the size of a monster. You know, I was doing, uh, you know, I called it frat boy blow, where it was like a 25 or 50 bag. And, um, you know, just something after you get off work to, you know, bump you up a little bit while you're doing all your drinking and go home and play some video games and, you know, do a couple nummies and, and then, you know, eat something and go to bed at 4 a.m. It was, you know, it wasn't like, oh, every day is going to be an eight ball kind of day. Although. There were those as well. Um, My point is that you know, from twenty five to thirty, you know, again, I'm in college. I did a really crappy job there. I was lucky to graduate with a three O. I'm just lucky to graduate. Period. Considering how little effort I put into it, and when I graduated um, in two thousand six, on August August sixth, two thousand six, is when I graduated, and I was I remember just being happy. Mom was alive then. And, um, you know, I've got some stories of her visiting me back at my frat days and from 94 to 97 and, and making a complete ass of both her and me. Um, I've got some stories of her coming to Orlando while I was a razor while, razor, while I was a raver and threatening to kill herself and shooting a gun into the wall. I've got stories of dad having a heart attack on New Year's Day after my mom and I went out, took a hell a ton of ecstasy at a club. Um, I got stories of mom coming to Gainesville and, and us getting... This, that and then we did some Scarface shit um, you know and I was glad she made it to my graduation um, but she didn't come nobody came to my graduation not even, not even stepdad or not bio dad nobody nobody came to my graduation I guess that's what happens when you graduate when you're 30 no one cares at that point um, so just my advisor, my advisor took me out to lunch because she was pretty much the reason why I graduated. And then my, uh, friends, the Prids, their family took me out and partied with me and, and bought me food and, and drink and celebrated with me because, um, I didn't have anybody else there. And, um, that sucks even thinking about it. That's even, that actually makes me sad just thinking about that. Um, I'm fiddling with this cord now in my hand because I feel emotionally vulnerable. Um, So 2006, I graduate college to no fandom at all. And uh, mom dies February 14th of 2007. And we had planned to move her back to Orlando um, because my stepdad, who I've been calling dad this whole time, kept having strokes. Because even though he would have a stroke and a heart attack, he'd continue drinking tons. Um, He'd keep drinking, thank you, Um, he he would keep drinking um, coffee and cigarettes and eating sugar a lot. And he could have chosen a different path. And he did not either. And um, so we were going to move mom back to Orlando because my sister had been taking care of him up to this point and sacrificing a great deal of her life. Meanwhile, unlike the prodigal son who runs off, I think there's a, I was at, I was at a, I was at a personal growth seminar a couple weeks ago and, I um, I'm not much of, I'm more of a universe, I believe in universal energy, and I've definitely read my share of the Bible, and I was raised, you know, with religion around me, so I'm uh, I'm not a religious person, per se, but I'm very spiritual, and I I do enjoy the Bible, and there's definitely a draw to that world for me, but just... I don't not a following. I say all that because I'm going to tell you this. There's a story in there. About, I think it's in Luke, where one where one of the, the the youngest son asks his dad to give him his inheritance, and then he goes and blows it and parties in the city, and uh, comes back and he's poor. And and the dad welcomes him back. And then the oldest son's like, "What the hell, dude? I've been here the whole time, busting my ass on the farm." And and young son gets to roll out, spend all the money, and come back, and he gets to eat the fat and calf. And I'm over here eating like salmon out of a river um, I was the young son I, I bailed on the family in 94 and I didn't even turn back enough to notice how far in the river mirror I put them and I say all this because my sister really sacrificed hard and I went t- t- to three universities and I partied and I lived up the life and um, so we were going to move my dad back to Orlando Um in the summer of 2007, so or my we were to move my mom to Orlando in the summer of 2007, so that she could live with Steve and, and Leslie and help. And it was sort of assumed that when I since I graduated that I'd move back to Orlando and get a job there and help. Um, even though that wasn't what I wanted to do, and I'm pretty sure considering how selfish and drunk and high I was all the time, it's probably not what I would have actually have done. Um, I don't think I would have done that at all, actually. I skipped over the part where, where I put my 300ZX into a tree and almost killed one of my best friends on April 6, 2006. Oh, and I also skipped the part where I broke up with uh, the woman I thought that I was going to marry out of college because her family found out we got arrested for shoplifting on Thanksgiving of 2005. So we had a breakup, and we said goodbye officially on Valentine's of 2006, and we barely ever spoke again after that. And she lived across the hall from me at my apartment in Gainesville. And then um that was February fourteenth, oh six. April sixth, oh six, I put my car into a tree and almost killed my friend Amber. And then I graduate um August sixth of two thousand six. Lots of sixes here, if you haven't noticed. And um then mom dies on Valentine's Day of two thousand seven. So that was not a really great year. The the <laughs> from February fourteenth, oh six to February fourteenth, oh seven was really uh, was really a shitty time. Yes, I graduated college, but no one really cared. And um, so, when Mom died, I re- I remember trying to keep it together at work and thinking that I could. I was I was the shift lead at a restaurant called Bonefish, and I got a phone call from my cousin Misty, who's never called who had never called me before and has never called me since. And and I knew when I picked up that phone that things weren't good. But mom had gone to the hospital so many times and ghosted us for two three weeks, and then would call and be like, "Oh, I was in intensive care for the last three weeks. They thought I was going to die, but I'm alive. And I'm drinking tequila and I'm hanging out with my two dogs, Jose and Pepe. And um, she loved those dogs. And um, yeah, I just remember when she died, there was a sense of relief that I wouldn't have to be responsible for her anymore, that I wouldn't have to wonder where she was. I wouldn't have to think about what she was doing. I wouldn't have to worry about her health. I wouldn't have to move to Orlando. Um, it was selfish, and it was painful to look back on and think about. And, you know, my addiction was so strong that I just I just didn't give a shit about anybody else. I, It was all about me and whatever it was I could do to just keep my life on the right track ish and i'm using air quotes here and i think a lot of people could probably see that in themselves i'm assuming that it's, there's a, a selfishness takes over that i mean i would have just as much as i would sacrifice almost anything um right now for this drive for this career that i'm doing you know and i get that in recovery i should be working on that and i am Um, But you know, like I don't sacrifice my health. I still work out no matter how busy I get, and if I need some self care, I do that. And I've got this whole program I built called the Life's Blueprint, where I go through all of my different aspects of my life and make sure that I'm keeping them balanced. You know, have I called friends recently? Have I, you know, have I worked on my spirituality within my career? Am I following morals and ethics and values that are things that are important? So I, I work on this constantly because. Once mom died, and that was painful. But I, I've I've never I've I've cried four times since then, and I've never cried sober. All four times were drunk, and um, I immediately moved to Dallas. Immediately, anything that DUI when I crashed my car kept me in Gainesville until September twenty first of two thousand and eight. I had to stay there for an extra year. Yeah. Um, 2008 and then I moved to Dallas and um, ultimately was going to stay with my dad for a while and get my own place and get a job and try to figure all that stuff out. Now I'm talking about bio dads just so you guys don't get lost on the whole family timeline dynamics thing here and um, I could see that that wasn't going to necessarily work out. Uh, it just wasn't enough. I, the jobs I was looking at, the jobs I was being offered were cubicle jobs at banks and stuff and I didn't want to do that so I took a job overseas um, so I could see the world, and um, oh, sidebar: when Mom died, um, uh, me and my aunt got into a—I wouldn't say a—it a, was—it was a debate about what we were going to do with Mom's. Body, because she thought that mom wanted to be buried in Oklahoma City, and I remember my mother specifically telling me when I was a when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, that do not let her be buried in Oklahoma City. That you know, preferably bury her on like a dune overlooking the ocean, which there's probably some health code violations to about that. I, unless like I don't know, it just stole her body and drove it there and just dug up a hole. <laughs> Them. I don't think that's legal, and so um, I had I we had the debate, and I told my aunt Paula if she would let me um, cremate mother that I would spend the rest of my life traveling the world, spreading her ashes at all the beautiful places I went to, and all the beautiful places we always wanted to go but couldn't. And so that's something I still do to this day. Um, she's in I've spread her like 150 different places. She's in 18 countries, um, well over 30 some states now. Um, I take these turtles and put them in the picture so that whenever I see a picture of a turtle, I always know that's a place that my mom's ashes are in. And um, you know, looking back at the way my addiction gripped me in my 30s, um, you know, I, this that, that I barely, I didn't even last a year at that job overseas because um, I drank too much, and my coworkers uh, basically told on me. If that, for lack of a better word. <laughs> And when I left that job overseas, I ended up in South Florida, working with uh, one of my old college friends, and that didn't work out. And um, because I was still, I was just drinking too much to actually be of any use to anyone. And so I ultimately um, went out to San Diego to go to a wine festival drank too much there, almost got another DUI, and um, met my cousin there. She's like, you should move to LA. Um, You should move out here, live with me, and let's get this LA thing going. Mom always had said that I should live with with Cousin Angel in Los Angeles, and she thought I would dominate LA. I would love it out here. So I moved out here on May 8th of 2009. I'm coming up on my 10-year anniversary. And, you know, I do so much now, and I think of my mother so much now. And it's, there's, there's trauma that I have yet to even begin to, to pull back on. Um, but this day isn't hard on me. Um, this isn't difficult for me to talk about. I mean, it's vulnerable, and there are certainly times where I feel a little weird discussing it. Um, I find myself looking at the screen of the iPad. I'm doing the Instagram live on a lot rather than actually looking at the camera. Cause it's almost like, I don't want to be looking in your eyes. Um, as I do this. And, and for those of you listening via the podcast, I think it was just time that, you know, I don't know how many people will f- resonate with this story or if they'll just, you know, hear another version of why. And, you know, we all make choices. We all make the decisions we made. I can't blame my behavior on my mother. You know, I can't say that, oh, had she not done this, this wouldn't have happened. But for years, we did. For years, we blamed both mom and dad for that divorce and, and for tearing us tearing the family apart and I do honestly think a lot of things would have been completely different had they stayed together I know my sister wouldn't have gotten into alcohol and drugs her freshman year in high school I know my mom would have come up there and kicked my freaking ass at Ball State and she would have yanked me out of that school so fast my head would have spun and I would have been working at freaking Karma Records in the Walmart parking lot back in Columbus Indiana where I had been working my all the way up until that summer she'd I'm asking back there working at that damn record store. I know it. Or worse, she'd have made me start working at a factory and do that for a year or two and tell me you don't want to go back to college. Um so that's that's the story of my you know, other's I mean look, I got two thousand blackout stories. I mean there was a period of time where I was blacking out three all the time, three, four days a week. You know, I've got if, if if I said I blacked out hundreds of times, the the number one thousand would be pissed off at me for not giving it its recognition for that really being how many times that I blacked out, and um, you know it's I've got you know blackout in Indonesia, wake up in Singapore stories, and blackout in a Denver airport. I blacked out in Denver airport so bad in two thousand sixteen that I literally. It was like I relived the Planes, Trains, and Automobiles movie because I literally got told I couldn't get on an airplane. I don't even know how I got out of the airport, but I ended up on a train. I got kicked off the train because I didn't buy a ticket. I don't even know how I got on the train. I remember sitting in somebody's car. like I somehow got into a car. I don't even know how, and that person was not cool with it. And I think I remember having to be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm drunk, and like running away. I don't know how the cops didn't get called on that and uh ended up in an Uber that took me to a hotel. I didn't even know where it was in relation to where I was in Denver, and I ended up, and I left my, all my luggage there, and I was lucky that it was waiting for me the next day. Whenever I went uh, back to the airport, I went to Lost and Found, and there was my luggage. I mean, I got so many of them, um, and we'll go into some of those in the past if I think that they're relevant to something that I'm discussing, but for now, Learning more about my mother because, you know, she was the most important woman in my life. And when that divorce and everything went down, um, I didn't heal correctly. And I didn't. And I'm still working on that. And I'm still um, trying to figure all that out. And um, not trying, I'm actually figuring it all out. But you know, I can look back in my timeline and see that when we left Oklahoma when I was four, and you know, uh, when we left Denver whenever I was like five and a half, and we ended up in Florida for two and a half years, and then we ended up in Indiana. Like, I mean, I can see how all this moving around, making friends for for nine months, and then moving to the other side of a town, and I uh, I can see how all this still plays a huge role in how I behave and how I act towards people and how quickly I am to let friends go and to not keep them around and to not miss them when they're gone, but to actually really miss them even more than I could have possibly imagine miss them. Um, and so these are some of the things we're going to be unwrapping on this show. And these are some of the things that I think are really cool to discuss with you guys. Um, down the line, I'm going to be turning these Instagram lives and Instagram TV into an interview show to learn more about what drove y'all into um, the addictive behaviors that led you to sobriety and into recovery. Because I'm very interested in just understanding more about what other people had to go through and that you know led them to this world. Because it's like even though our stories are different in how we got here, they're they're probably definitely very similar into the coping mechanisms that we chose, right? Like we all have heard that, you know, alcohol and drugs were a solution to a problem that ultimately became the problem, right? I mean, I used alcohol and drugs to mask my emotional immaturity and the emotional pain that I had from my mother getting divorced to my father, and so I turned into uh, an alcoholic and a drug addict, and that's what I used to cope. Until I couldn't use that to cope anymore. And then it had such a grip on me, you know, and it had a grip on my mother. I mean, because when she divorced dad in 94, she went down and um, she went down, let's see, she moved to Bonita Beach. She moved down to Bonita Beach and she moved in with the guy that was in the pictures that my dad thought she was cheating on him with. And I will believe her when she says that nothing happened. Um, But ultimately, once he said that, then she's like, well, screw it. Now something might as well happen. And so she got into tequila real hard. And um, he was into tequila as well. And that was it. She was into tequila for the next 13 years and um, which was doing, you know, did did a number on her body. And because uh, my Aunt Carol had died of drugs and, you know, other people in my family had problems with addiction, I, when my mom told me that when I was uh, like eight or nine years old, I remember standing in the kitchen at Sergeant Road and she's like, Yeah, you know, the family addiction. And she mentioned that my bio dad had gone to jail for a few years. To me, I heard that as permission to become an addict, not don't become an addict. Because look at this, what I heard was it's, if you do it, you're just, you know, it's like you're just following in the family tree. You're just being part of family, right? I didn't hear a warning. I heard, come on down. You're the next contestant on. This family is a bunch of addicts. And um, whereas, you know, my my brother um, didn't do that and, and good on him. So um, I think that's about it for tonight. It's Valentine's Day. And uh, I'm going to post this on Monday morning for those of you listening in via podcast. If you'd like to see what it looked like for me doing it um, visually, you can go on my Instagram and check out my Instagram TV because I'm going to be posting it there. And it's probably going to end up posting on my Facebook page at From Sobriety to Recovery as well. And of course, Instagram, you guys are watching me on that. I don't need to tell you how to find me on there because you are currently having found me. Um, You know, I think as I look back, there, I mean, of course, I, mean, I don't have regrets because I realize that having regrets is, is it's damn near ridiculous because I can't go back and change any of that stuff. Do I think my life would have been wildly different had I chosen not to get so heavily into alcohol and drugs when I did? Absolutely. Do I think that I could have um, done things better? Absolutely. Could I have loved my mother more and, and, and released that anger towards her earlier? Yeah. Yeah, I could have done that. Um, cause she had not divorced my dad and stayed and kept the family together, but probably sacrificed her happiness. I mean, those first few years out of the divorce with Randy were great, but ultimately that relationship blew up in her face too. And, um, mindful architecture is saying some really nice stuff to me on here. Thank you very much for that. Um, you know, that relationship blew up in her face as well. And then she was miserable. And then she probably wishes she could have gone back and changed a lot of the decisions she made in '94. Um, You know, my family—we couldn't have stopped mom from getting Crohn's. And I mean, I remember I spent uh, years—the first few years of that divorce—thinking that had I stepped up and just sat him down and been like, "Seriously, guys, let's get this shit together. Like, are you are you seriously going to destroy this family over some photos?" Um, I don't. You know, that's like an eight year old thinking that the divorce is his fault. It was no more my fault, nor was it any more in my control to stop. Um, it doesn't mean that I, you know, that didn't haunt me for years. You know, I really only became okay with this entire situation of how my life ended up when I got sober. Honest to God, I have, that is the only reason why I am, I, I am okay with where I'm at now. It's because I'm in sobriety. I'm in, I'm sober and I'm in recovery. That's it. My program through Kaiser is amazing. And, you know, my sister's got her own program and she's rocking it. And the only reason I'm okay with where our life is right now is because we're sober. Because regardless, I mean, life is going to hand us some shit, man. Life is going to hand us some, some stuff we're just not in the mood for. But it's way easier dealing with it whenever we're sober. It is way easier. Today is the best day of my life because I woke up sober. Hands down. Each day is the better than the day before it because I woke up sober. But my mom couldn't do that and she died at 51. 51. My, bu- my stepdad couldn't stop drinking coffee, couldn't stop chain-smoking Marlboro Reds, couldn't stop drinking Equal in his coffee and eating bologna sandwiches. He got half of his foot freaking cut off because of diabetes, and he died, in, uh, died on the bathroom toilet. He had his own addictions. He couldn't battle through. That's not going to be me. Frick that, man. Absolutely not. I would love for my mother to still be around. I would love, love, love. The last conversation we ever had was two days before Valentine's Day. And we got into an argument over whether I was an alcoholic or not. And guess which side she was on. The side that said, I wasn't an alcoholic. She tried to say the same shit people were saying to me my last year of drinking. Oh, you just need to find an interest. You just need to, you just need to, to moderate better. You need to control it better. She would say things like, you're just bored. Gainesville isn't challenging you. You graduated. Well, yeah, no shit, but that, that doesn't stop the addiction. There was people who were telling me that crap in 2016. I didn't talk to them for the first year or two. I was sober because I just, I remember walking away from them being like, what the hell are they talking about? Manage it? Well, that's a great idea. Why did not I think about managing my addiction 20 years ago? Like like they just like they just told me that the earth was round and all of a sudden my eyes were open I'm like oh what's that up there that's also the sun like like literally they, th- they it's like they thought they were telling me something that was going to change my life forever Why don't you just manage your addiction better? Why don't you just come up with a better hobby? Why don't you just get a better job? Why don't you just be happier? I mean I argued this with my mother and it's a shame that 2 days later she passed away. Cuz it would have been it's freaking awesome to be able to, to continue that conversation with her. I don't ever think that woman was going to make it into her 60s because Crohn's had ravaged her body. And I definitely believe that you know there's, there's an energy force of her above watching out and being like, yeah, get on that sobriety because there's there's sort of something that we've realized now and I say we as a community that none of that shit that they were saying earlier uh manage it better, get better hobbies, you know, uh get a different job, uh moderate. Oh, moderation. No. No. Alcohol touches my lips, right? Like let's say this was booze, right? Touch my lips, drink the whole bottle in one gulp. I'm like Frank the Tank on steroids. I'm getting a little Getting a little (laughs) triggered here because I just, you know, it was a shame, you know, that that's the conversation we had. But I also know now that the reason she said some of that stuff is that if I was an alcoholic, that means that she was an alcoholic. And that she would have to face that within herself. And she'd have to ask herself why life hadn't turned out the way that she wanted. Was it because she was laying around in bed all day sorry that she had Crohn's? Yeah. Was she drinking it away? Yeah. A lot of people who told me that I just needed to manage it better and I just needed to moderate are the kind of people who have a problem who don't want to discuss it. So they're so the last thing they need to see is me overcome it. Because now all of a sudden they have to look at themselves and say, well, damn, I, I, I drink like he does. Or or or, which is the other side that I'm sure we're all familiar with, is that they're going to say things like, "Well, they're going to try to justify it." Well, I you know I can have one or two. I can manage it. I can moderate it. I don't need it. I can quit for a few weeks at a time, and then when I do it, it's not that bad. I don't get too hungover. I'm not missing appointments. My family still knows I love them. I remember my grandma back in the day saying things like, "Well, he was a great man, you know, and best thing he didn't drink," and I always thought. What's the matter if he drinks, if he brings home the bacon, and he's there for the kids, and he's loving, and he's generous? And then, and then I get sober, and I realize that there's a light, there's a light in our eyes that goes out when the alcohol and the drugs kick in. And there's a reason why all of my girlfriends back in the day and my friends would be like, dude, I just don't like it when you get super smashed because it's like you're not you anymore. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm bouncing around. I'm having a good time. We're laughing. We're joking. I was like, we're we're doing it. This is awesome. Shut up. Now I know. Now I've seen that light turn off in people's eyes. And now I know. Now I know what my grandma was talking about when she said that the best thing a man can bring the best thing a man can offer to his family is not drinking now of course, women can do that too, but I mean she's talking to me i'm I'm the grandson she wouldn't have referenced the women, but obviously women too and so that being the last conversation mom and I had, and, and now having grown and done so much, I, I would, lo- I would, you know, it would be great to have five minutes to just hug her and, and kiss her and be able to say, you know, I hope I'm making you proud. And I'm, I don't have to hope. I know, I know I'm making her proud. And on Valentine's Day, I would like to send all of you guys out love and compassion and empathy that you have your own story and I can't wait to hear about them. And just know that if you don't feel supported by those around you, get different people around you. Because one of the best things I have in my life is the support system. I feel like everybody is so happy when I tell them I wear two I wore two um, chips around my neck. One says two years and then I put one on the other side that's 24 hours. One to celebrate the longevity and one to remind myself just for today. So it's Valentine's Day on the Pacific Coast. It is about 647 here. So most people on the East Coast are probably finishing up their meals. And um, hopefully that they're spending it with a loved one. And if you're alone, you're not really alone, guys. You're not really alone because you're with yourself. And get comfortable and happy with Mm -hmm. that. There's a, There was a meme on Instagram I've seen a lot that, with uh, Jim Carrey saying, as soon as you get comfortable and love spending time by yourself is when everybody else wants to start spending time with you. So I could only stress enough that uh, you just get comfortable in your own skin and know that you're loved. And, um, you yeah, know, so on this Valentine's Day, just sending out love, sending out love to mom, sending out love to my sister and to everybody in the family. Um, I don't think any of them are paying attention to what I'm doing, so I highly doubt that they're listening to this. Um, but yeah, I think that's it guys. It was really been awesome for me to share this with you. I did not expect this to become a 53 minute long show. Um, I, I really didn't, but it's, uh, it can be therapeutic and it can be, um, a growth moment for me and you know, Addiction Talk just said something I have it said good point and inspirational man and I thank you for, for paying attention. Mindful Architecture if you're still out there. Uh I really appreciate your support in this too. And for those of you listening via the podcast who've made it this far, um, you know, much love to you and to everything around you. I'm sure there's other things that I could be talking about and I'm sure at this point I just feel like I'm a little bit more emotional about this than I thought I'd be. And, um, you know, I really would have loved for her to have chosen my sister and I over alcohol. I really would have loved that, and I have no doubt in my mind that there are a plethora of people in my wake who had loved for me to have chosen them over alcohol and drugs, and worse is that the person I wish I would have cared the most about whenever I was using all those alcohol and drugs was myself. And what an amazing journey this soul has been on. Um, What an amazing journey this soul has been on. And the blessing I think I take from this, and I hope all of you can take from this, is that I don't know what we're supposed to learn on this planet, but I definitely know that it's a learning planet. Like I feel that deep inside. Like this is just this is you know, in, in the cosmos of all planets, like this is very Neanderthal. We're all cavemen really. I mean, look at the way we treat our look at the way we treat ourselves and people different from us and the earth and animals and our food supply and all this stuff. I mean, look at all that. Um, we're a learning planet and so I don't know what this soul is supposed to learn while it's here. Um, I just know that because I've gotten sober and I'm in recovery, that I'm really going to make sure that I learn everything I can possibly learn. The uh, God, what an injustice that would have been to Jesse Mogul to have died in my bed, suffocating from my own vomit, or in an alley somewhere, passed out, or whatever. What a, what a what a disservice to this soul. So. Um, because I had enough of that in my family to realize that that's not the way you want to go out. So, I love you guys and thank you very much for listening. Happy Valentine's Day! Sending out love, much, 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 much love. Um, after all of that, still the most important person in my life, and, and I don't want you guys to take it, you know, to think anything other it was my mother, and she still is, and I still wonder. Um, if there's teachings of hers that I may have missed and I go back on my timeline and and I'm, I'm making sure I'm picking up all those breadcrumbs because I certainly can say that because of her, I became the man that I am today, even if I had to go through all of those challenges to get here. By God, I got here. And I think that's the most important thing to remember is that by God, we got here. So Instagram Lives giving me the countdown, 30 seconds to go. So that's it, guys. I'm gonna peace out on the podcast as well. Please, if you haven't already, like, follow, subscribe on, on all whatever your podcasting app you're listening to. Go to at from sobriety to recovery on Instagram, at from sobriety to recovery on Facebook. As always, the power of positive energy. Release it. Flow. Have an amazing life. Happy Valentine's Day. I love you guys. Take care of one another. See you soon.